sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government, hug the government, love the government, hug the government, love the government. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, welcome to this Friday the 13th in October edition of The Politics Guys. Yeah. And for Friday the 13th, I, I went ahead and uh, um, because I was cursed, I, I got COVID. <laughs> <laughs> the cursed Ken. I mean, there, there's kind yep. of a ring to that. I hadn't thought about that. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> so I am doing this show uh, from home. I'm not out. I'm quarantining, but I'm under the uh, yeah, I am a little bit under the gun with the COVID. You know, and I, I will say before we got started, you you sound really chipper for a guy with COVID. I'm not going to lie. I mean, could this just be, and this is just me spitballing here, Ken, but given that I think we've all recognized now that the COVID vaccine is, in fact, just nanobots, do you think that your left-wing positions is the reason that you continue to get COVID? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. I mean, you know, I, I was telling you, Trey, and I don't mind telling the listeners, I've had I've had all six vaccines. I've been vaccinated six times, including the recent um, new vaccine. And yet this is the fourth time I've, I've got COVID. So I, I definitely have been like probably the most uh, probably the, the most frequently infected person who's taken all six vaccines. <laughs> but at least they've all been mild cases. No, I hear you. I hear you. We were talking about the other show, the show. Uh, I've been on a similar kind of schedule, but I have to do other kinds of things. I'm weird. I'm an immunocompromised man. Um, so, you know, there, there it is. Well, we, you know, this is going to be a different kind of show in the sense that we're, we're going to take on fewer stories, Ken. And, we, you know, we had talked about that this week. Uh, and that's because, you know, we, we've just got two, I think, really emblematic cases of why what we do on the politics, guys, is, is so different from what you're going to get. You know, one, we want to obviously talk about what's happening uh, in the Gaza Strip with Israel, with Hamas. And I just couldn't help as I continued to watch that unfold starting last weekend. One of the things, the, the, the media professor in me just you know, couldn't get over the fact that you're having these stories with absolutely really no uh, uh, context to them. And so we're really going to try to delve into some context a lot more deeply on, on both of these. And then if we have some time, we have some time. But that you know, we're, we're really going to kind of take it that way. So, you know, if you were hoping for a deep dive into things, uh, listeners, today is the day that Ken and I are going to do that. Uh, and, I, and I spent a lot of time trying to uh, uh, prep on that front. And so what we're going to start with, our first story is going to be the violence in and around the Gaza Strip between Israel and Hamas. You know, we often do the international stories. And so I, I think it's apropos that the, the two of us are the one, ones tackling this. So let me just start off by giving us some background, right? So for listeners, I'm hoping this kind of helps us really have a better conversation about this and that you might have a better context for what's, what's going on. So if you're confused, the Gaza Strip is located in the southwest portion of what we consider to be Israel. And that means that its western border is the Mediterranean Sea uh, and its southwestern border is with Egypt. It's a tiny strip of land in some ways. Uh, and it connects specifically there to Egypt at the Sinai Peninsula. Now, the rest of the, this un, kind of unaffiliated territory, and, and what I mean by that, this is a territory that is not a state, is surrounded and has been controlled at different junctures by different states, but is surrounded on the other sides by Israel. 
Now, in terms of size, like I said, it's small. It's about 140 square miles, but it's got a population, and this sometimes shocks people, of one and a half million, with approximately half of those individuals living in refugee camps. Now, how and why does this all start? Well, Contemporary Gaza begins in 1947, when the United Nations approved a plan. Uh, now, really, at that juncture, it's not the United Nations, but the League of Nations, um, to, to partition the Britain under having two different states. There was going to be a Jewish and an Arab state uh, after World War II. Palestinian Arabs were allotted the town of Gaza and the larger non-contiguous territory that we now call the West Bank. Now, when Britain a year later ends up ceding control of that area to Israel, uh, Israel accepted the boundaries, but the Arab Palestinians did not. And so this ends up leading to a war on May 15, 1948, right after the British exit. So that conflict is actually between Israel and all of the surrounding Arab countries. So that's Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, uh, and Egypt. Gaza is a really important part of that campaign specifically for Egypt because Egypt was attempting to capture the coastline. Now, this fails and Egypt's, Egypt's ability to move forward specifically fails. And that leaves Egypt controlling that strip of land about 40 kilometers long, about six to eight wide uh, on that, uh, uh, in the wake of that war. Now, the war ends in February of 1949, and those territorial boundaries are formally drawn up into the region that we now call the Gaza Strip, with the city of Gaza near the northern edge of its border. And that's important for what's been happening recently and the threats that have been made uh, just uh, uh, today. That is, it is, and now it is closer to Israel, the city, than it is to Egypt. Now, as scholars note, in the wake of the Arab-Israeli war, or as Israelis think of it as their independence war, you get about 700 to 800,000 Palestinians becoming refugees living inside the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip. Now, history's not done, right? There's more to this. So Gaza then, at that point, remains under Egyptian rule until the Suez Canal crisis in 1956. Now, for those of you who don't know, just briefly, that's when Egypt tries to nationalize the Suez Canal Company, and France, Britain, and Israel attempt to control the canal and seize it away from Egypt. Uh, and as part of that, the, the Gaza Strip becomes central to the plan. Israel actually takes it over, but then it will eventually relinquish it back to Egypt in the after. In 1967, Israel launches a strike against Arab states that appeared to be mobilizing for war. It's kind of a preemptive strike. And so over a five-day period, the six-day war occurs, and Israel uh, ends up controlling militarily the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula, the Golan Heights up in Syria, and most importantly, in some ways, for most of you, the West Bank right there uh, along with East Jerusalem. Now, that's the Six Days War as it's known in Israel. It leaves about a million Arabs under Israeli rule, and it's clear to Palestinians that Arabs are not going to be able to fix their situation and kind of the current instability and the back and forth begin. Now, in the 1990s, there seemed to be some work to finding a solution to exist. And during the Clinton administration on September 13, 1993, Israeli Prime Minister Rabin and Palestinian Liberation Organization, or the PLO, Mahoud Abbas, signed the Declaration of Principles of Inter-Self-Government Arrangements, or as we commonly refer to that, the Oslo Accords. 
Both sides agreed that there's going to be a Palestinian authority. In other words, kind of a governmental structure, although there is no state. And importantly for Israel, the PLO ends up renouncing terrorism and recognizes Israel's right to exist. As a result of this agreement, Israel would pull out from most of Gaza during this period. Unfortunately, though, uh, uh, the prime minister ends up being an assassinated by an Israeli who opposes the Oslo Accords on religious ground. That murder is then followed by a series of terrorist attacks by this organization called Hamas. This leads us to another thing I have a lot of students and listeners ask me about, and that's it's what's Hamas and where does it come from? Well, Hamas is actually formalized a decade earlier in 1987, uh, and a lot of what we think about of this comes from the, uh, the United uh, States Director of National Intelligence. The Hamas has its roots in the Muslim Brotherhood, and, and for those of you who don't speak Arabic, the word itself actually means zeal, but it's also an acronym, and when translated into English, stands for the Islamic Resistance Movement, or you might think of this as the zeal for the Islamic Resistance Movement. The group's charter calls for establishing an Islamic Palestinian state in place of Israel and has rejected and continues to reject all agreements the PLO made with Israel, which includes, importantly, the Oslo Accords. Hamas argues that liberating Palestine from Israel is a religious duty not just for them but for all Muslims. Hamas exists in both the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. Now, politically and importantly, not that long ago, I guess from our point of, my point of view, your point of view, Ken, in 2006, Hamas is able to win control of the Palestinian Authority in elections. And, and they don't have a complete majority, but after some additional internal fighting with some more secular elements, it ends up getting complete control over that politically. And it has, since that time, uh, continued to use uh, suicide bombings, such as in 2008, and a continual uh, bombardment of rocket and mortar attacks on Israel. So how do we bring all of this to this week? So there has been numerous attempts to either try and settle and control or to leave alone those uh, regions, but neither Egypt nor e uh, Israel uh, have what you would think of as a soft border with the Gaza Strip. So as a result, in addition to the poverty, according to the United Nations, there are eight official refugee camps within Gaza, which even today, as of right now, are accommodating 600,000 people. Now, many of those camps were actually created in the wake of that Arab-Israeli war. Others have emerged more recently. But the Gaza Strip, 81% of the population lives in poverty, and around 1 million of its residents rely daily on food aid. Now, understanding these conditions might help us understand the popularity of Hamas. Hamas has argued that the only possible move forward is militarily, and they have used their power to have a complete takeover of the Gaza Strip. Hamas, along with others, have used rockets over the last number of years to try to give it a better positioning with Israel. And Israel, in response, beginning in 2007, has considered Hamas a terrorist organization, along with a, a number of other countries, including the United States. And as a result of a terrorist organization being in control, has cut power, water, and other inputs, the Gaza Strip. And this has led to, again, additional uh, difficulties between the, the regions. Now, this also has to think a little bit about terrorism, right? That's kind of here. You know, we've heard and you've probably heard about Saudi Arabia and other countries not recognizing Hamas as a terrorist organization. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about terrorism. I busted out a bunch of my terrorism books in preparation for this show. Um, 
But just as a reminder, uh, I get this from Bruce Hoffman, who's kind of a famous terrorism scholar. He gives a really good definition of it. He says at, ba- at, ba- at base, excuse me, terrorism is the pursuit of political power through both actual violence, but then the threat of the continued use of that violence to a large, sustained civilian population. Now, Hamas's popularity and the sympathy that it evokes from the Arab, uh, Arab world, despite being potentially a terrorist organization, is it's pretty under, easily understood as an empirical phenomenon. So you, you have people who are out of power, who feel they've been ghettoed, aren't willing to have their political preferences in the open for a host of reasons. And as a result, as the work of Martha Crenshaw shows us, that is a breeding ground for the logic of terrorism. And so this is what we have to leading up until this week. Now, you might say, well, why not Egypt? Why don't people come across Egypt? But keep in mind, even starting in 2011, uh, Egypt has only allowed very few people to pass. And by 2013, has a complete closed border with the Gaza Strip. Uh, So this leads us to this past week and the atrocities that occurred. So on Saturday morning of this last week, at the end of the Jewish festival, of Sakat, Hamas attacked from the Gaza Strip from air, sea, and ground. What we now know is that thousands of missiles were fired from Gaza indiscriminately into Israel, in part to allow for paragliders to follow in the wake of those rockets. At the same time, armed fighters, many motorized, followed in bulldozers that breached those blockades of the fences and the borders that separate Israel from the Gaza Strip. It also included motorboats storming the beaches of the north, to the north of the Gaza Strip, along with a number of individuals on motorcycles and other motorcycle vehicles then coming behind those uh, uh, um, uh, openings. And the individuals that Hamas has killed and attacked at this point uh, seemingly seem to be relatively random, women, children, babies, the elderly. And some, and this is what brings us to some of the things we're going to have to talk about today, we have actually hostages taken uh, and brought back into the Gaza Strip. As a matter of fact, a musical festival was one, uh, is one source of information where Hamas militants killed down 260 partygoers. The individuals who are being held captive are being used in this kind of a, a ransom. And numbers are going to continue to change. Ken and I are recording this on, uh, again, Friday, October 13th. Uh, But as I've seen right now, most uh, news outlets have somewhere in the vicinity of 1,600 Israelis dead, um, uh, about 1,500 Hamas soldiers dead, and about 2,900 and additional people injured. 14 among the dead are American citizens, and of today, it looked like we're starting to get a number, but the last time I looked, we did not have a firm number on how many American citizens were being held hostage according to President Biden, but there is a number of them as well. Now, Israel has since launched a response, and that response has killed approximately 1,000 people, again, as of the most recent data that I have, inside of Gaza, and injured approximately 5,000 others. Many of the dead and injured also include women and children. Additionally, Israel is issuing weapons, including uh, ARs, to civilians in the communities surrounding Gaza, because this was a a surprise attack, and that's something I know we're also going to be talking about, Ken. Some in Israeli's parliament are already arguing that it's time for uh, Israel to simply level the Gaza Gaza Strip. As a matter of fact, uh, today, this morning, there were evacuation orders set off. Uh, They have been coming in a variety of ways, but they have come most recently by warplane, telling individuals who are civilians that they can't shield Hamas anymore and they have to evacuate to the south. But of course, there's not a lot of uh, 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 space, as we've already just talked about, but they're asking them to evacuate 
Gaza City, not Gaza Strip. Internationally, the debate, of course, is whether Hamas is a terrorist organization or not, and what level of response from Israeli, Israel should and can be. And we have to look no further than some pieces here in the United States. That has been taking up, I think, most of the oxygen. So, Ken, that's a lot going on right there. And I think I'll pause right there uh, to yeah. get some of your thoughts on what's happening. First, uh, t two uh, very minor uh, corrections to what was uh, otherwise a really excellent overview. Um, the, the United Nations um, did exist in 1947, and, and it was the United Nations that um, uh, mandated uh, uh, the state creation of the State of Israel. Um, that was uh, the UN started in 46, so so it wasn't the League of Nations. Um, and the other one was uh, the Oslo Accords were um, actually signed by uh, Yasser Arafat on behalf of the Palestinians, not by the not by the current president uh, Mahmoud Abbas, but by his predecessor. Um, but other than that, yeah, that was a, a good summary. I guess a couple other aspects of this that I think I might highlight in terms of your history that that um, I think help explain the the, the current conflict is that. Um, uh, after the Oslo Accords were signed uh, in, in during the Clinton administration, as you mentioned, really um, uh, Israel did not live up to some of its obligations, and I think that caused. Um, uh, and you mentioned part of that was because of the Rabin assassination, um, and then the, the the sort of swing to the right that happened in Israel after that. But but Israel was supposed to be um, actually starting a process. Um, towards a, a two-state solution uh, with an independent uh, Palestine, but but on the ground, um, the the Netanyahu government and and his, his predecessor um, Likud governments, which is the Likud is like the conservative party in Israel, um, they they really did launch on a, a pretty full-scale project of building as many new Israeli settlements as possible um, in the West Bank, in the area that was supposed to actually become the new Palestinian state, and the more the, the the more uh, uh, Israeli settlements that were on the ground in that area, the the more impossible it was becoming to um, you know actually make progress towards creating a uh, uh, an independent Palestinian state uh, on the West Bank. And meanwhile, Gaza, um, you know, Israel took the opposite approach. Uh, Gaza is much smaller than the West Bank and much more densely populated. And the the Israelis did not build settlements there. In fact, they more or less completely withdrew from there. Um, but well, the, the first time there was an election in Gaza after the uh, after the Israeli withdrawal in 2006, that's the first time they were allowed to have first and only time they were allowed to have an election in Gaza. Um, Hamas uh, won, and that was a, a, a great disappointment, I think, to everybody who was hoping that there could be a two state solution, because the 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 other Palestinian party, the, the party of Mahmoud Abbas, which is in power in the um, in the West Bank, the Fatah party. Um, is is trying to work towards a two-state solution. Uh, but Hamas has always had as its platform that it won't um, accept uh, any state of Israel under any circumstances, um, and that it will use uh, violence and terrorism uh, to try to end the state of Israel. And so that, um, and once they came in in the election in 2006, they never held another election. So, um, so you've had this kind of uh, Divergence within the um, Palestinian occupied territories, where I think in the in the West Bank, 
um, the the Palestinians primarily have tried to use political means to advance the, their 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 aspirations to an independent Palestinian state, um, and I think really the the Israelis have um, really tried to undermine that with the settlement building. Um, whereas in Gaza, in contrast, you have this um, Hamas rather than Fatah. You have a a, a, a Palestinian party there that's committed only to violence, terrorism, and the ending of the state of Israel entirely. Um, and um, and sometimes that uh, plays out in 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 more or less uh, horrific ways. But I think the most horrific attacks were the ones that we saw this week. And that leads us to something where you kind of had a, a, a unique point of view on this, Ken. And that is, I think, internationally, a lot of people were surprised by the level of surprise that Israel had, right? There are reports that Egypt had uh, uh, submitted information to Israel that an attack was coming, that there had been some uh, suggestions by lower levels in the Israeli military that an attack was coming. But it still ends up being uh, this surprise attack. And you had, I thought, a kind of yeah. insightful take on that. So I want to probe yeah, you to sure. talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I, and I've, I've kind of thought about it even more since I wrote to you. So my views have evolved a little bit. But um, the so on the question of, you know, how is it possible that Israel was um, so surprised by this surprise attack from Hamas. There, there have been many attacks from Hamas before, but they because Israeli uh, surveillance is is fairly sophisticated and uh, Israel does have human intelligence as well from inside of Gaza. Um, all, all prior attacks, of which there have been many, um, have been reasonably contained um, by Israel. Um, but this one um, was maybe the most massive attack ever. The mobilization for it certainly involved uh, quite a lot of people and must have involved quite a lot of communications that could have been surveilled. And, and yet, um, you know, it seems to have been, you know, that Israel was caught completely by surprise, which is what what um, made the terrorist attack so effective. And um, I've been I've been trying to think about how that could happen. And uh, I, I think, you know, some certainly some of it, the reporting is indicating was because the um, the Hamas figured out a way to technologically to defeat some of the surveillance technology. And I, I hadn't realized that when I first wrote to you. But um, so the, the, I think the issue was that um, Israel, the Israeli military maintains both a lot of surveillance cameras and a lot of surveillance drones and a lot of uh, surveillance um, uh, um, uh, eavesdropping within the communication systems. So they, they generally do get quite a lot of information uh, out of Gaza, which they then have to analyze. But I think one one technological thing that I, I learned about in the past couple of days is that um, you know most of most of uh, the way that that information travels from the surveillance cameras and the surveillance microphones and the wiretaps um, back to the Israeli uh, military um, is primarily through uh, wireless communications links that make use of cell tower networks. And so um, I think the Hamas was able to figure out that if they could um, sabotage some of the cell towers, they could actually interfere with the you know the process of of uh, collecting intelligence, and it, it appears that that did happen. So that's one thing I wanted to acknowledge. But what I what I also had told you about, and this is I think what you're asking me about, is that separate and apart from that, um, I, I think one one uh, of the um, one of the kind of one of the issues that always bedevils all counterintelligence work. Um, is that in, intelligence agencies always have to try to figure out when they're collecting information, uh, whether the information is somehow disinformation that the enemy intended for them to collect in order, in order to deceive them. 
And I think the Israeli Mossad, um, more than most intelligence services, maybe similarly to the KGB, but um, that the, they they uh, are um, extremely skeptical um, that information that they're receiving could be could be disinformation. And a lot of that uh, comes from the legacy of um, the, the Mossad uh, was, um, you know, in in, the, in its early days when it was set up, it worked extremely closely with uh, American CIA uh, counterintelligence chief, uh, James Jesus Angleton. And James Jesus Angleton was, uh, you know, really a fanatic who did a tremendous amount of harm to our CIA um, because he, he he took the he took the his ideas about needing to route out uh, uh, enemy disinformation uh, to such an extreme um, that he he really never credited any intelligence information that he received. All intelligence information that he received, he he always viewed it as though, well, if 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 we if we have this information, it's got to be because the enemy wants us to have this information, and that's got to mean that the, um, the 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 enemy is is got a sophisticated disinformation operation. And in fact, another part of Angleton's thinking was. That if there were other CIA officers within the CIA who were giving um, more credence to espionage product than, than he was, um, he would assume that that means that part of the Soviet disinformation operation is that they've planted these moles inside the CIA. And <laughs> yeah. so you have CIA officials saying, um, you know, th- this this is legitimate information we're getting from these legitimate KGB defectors. And, and Angleton would say, well, no, these are, these are fake fake KGB defectors, and you're a Soviet mole inside the CIA, and that's that's why you that's why you are, are telling us you believe this information. And and he was so um, you know really um, lost in what what people sometimes call the wilderness of mirrors, or sometimes called uh, sick think, um, that, that we really made no use of any perfectly good information we got from Soviet defectors um, through most of the the the, the, the 60s. Anyhow, um, uh, Angleton eventually got fired in the in the early 70s. But um, but I do think you know he worked very closely um, with people like Teddy Kollek, uh, who was the first mayor of Jerusalem after the state of Israel was formed, and and who then went on to form uh, the, the Mossad. And I do think a lot of Mossad culture um, may, may be a little bit infected by that, so that kind of hyper suspicion could have tainted. You know, that I think Israel's thinking on this would be, well, um, you know, the the Hamas is always launching uh, minor terrorist attacks, but we are so much stronger than them that you know it's impossible for them to actually harm us militarily, and so they're they're only able to try to harm us with psychological disinformation operations. And so if we're if we're hearing about um, some some large scale um, military operation, some large scale terrorist operation that's going to um, ha- achieve more. Um, uh, um, cause more damage to Israel than than any Hamas operation into Israel um, has ever caused before. Then what we're probably hearing is a, is a disinformation operation decided designed maybe to psych us out or maybe to um, draw the Israeli military down to the Gaza border to to draw it away from the Lebanon border so that actually Hamas's partners Hezbollah could attack up there. You know that, that a lot of that kind of thinking about you know why do they want instead of thinking this information is true thinking, um, you know, why does Hamas want us to think that this is what's going to happen and kind of dismissing it that way. So I I think that could have played a role. Um, There's one other theory that I just read in the Jerusalem Times the other day as well. And uh, 
the Jerusalem Times was blaming a lot of this on Netanyahu personally and saying that um, Netanyahu actually had pursued a, a strategy um, because of his strong uh, desire never to live up to the Oslo Accords and never to allow there to be any independent uh, Palestinian state, um, that he actually um, basically was good with, was happy with the idea that Hamas was governing in Gaza and Fatah was governing in, in um, the West Bank and that uh, Netanyahu liked that better than having Fatah in both because um, if Fatah was in both, then you'd have a, a reasonable negotiating partner and they would have the sympathy of the world. But as long as you have Hamas in one, then you've got the Palestinians divided against each other. And you've got Hamas being um, a, a, you know, an entity that the whole world has no sympathy for because they're basically fanatical terrorists. And so that um, so another another theory I read was that um, Netanyahu um, actually you know, didn't understand how serious of an attack that this was going to be, but he thought that there was going to be um, a, a fairly significant attack out of uh, Gaza along the lines of what's happened in the past, and that he actually did want want to allow that to happen rather than stop it, you know, not expecting the scale that it was going to be on, but just wanting to keep um, uh, um, kind of the, the, um, the world focused on you know, the fact that Hamas is terrorists who can never possibly be allowed to have a state um, rather than keeping the world focused on uh, the, the the idea that um, the Oslo Accords provide a path towards a Palestinian state and that the Palestinians in, in Gaza in particular have really been living in what amounts to the world's largest uh, um, open air outdoor prison, um, you know, for, for, for a generation now. And it's it's a very unsustainable situation that you know I think otherwise would would really draw a lot of the world's sympathy, but when they do things like this, that sort of solves that problem for for Netanyahu. Well, you know that brings us I think to the big. I, th- I thought we'd start on the international side of things, and that is, you know, what are the international players? What's the international solution? I mean, not to bring up a small point. Uh, you know, part of that is to say that there are the worries of the connections between Hamas uh, and Iran. There seems to be some connections between Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, on this particular issue, um, you know, to, to bring it to the United States. This is this is brought into question our rele- releasing of held funds for Iran, saying you know this kinds of backing is what allows Hamas and other terrorist organizations to exist. But yet, at, at the same time, and I, and I think you say it quite rightly, you know, uh, the, the Gaza Strip is a ghetto in that sense. It is a it's it, it's also a prison in that sense. But it's one in which there is no even potential exit. Uh, and it's particularly hard. I think a lot of times when when I look at least at kind of knee-jerk responses, it's not even as if Egypt has been willing to be a, <laughs> you know, a, a partner in that play. It doesn't ever feel like there is an obvious exit solution, just a lot of position-taking. And, and, and what do you think about that, Ken? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's right. I think the, the, um, the window where there's going to be um, any kind of win-win solution you know, has has probably closed by now. And in fact, I think I, I um, one of the one of the I, I take it that one of the military goals that Israel uh, put into effect yesterday and today, when they they warned the um, people in Gaza, you know, we're going to be really just bombing 
Gaza City back into the Stone Age well, now. And they're, and, they're going to go in military. Yeah. So there's going to be a ground, just to be clear, and this was new as of today, Ken, they're, they're going to move in in forces as well into the Gaza Strip in an yeah. attempt to find some of these individuals. So this is more than bombing right. at this juncture even, too. Yeah. But, but, the, but I was saying they're actually warning the majority of people in the whole Gaza Strip that they have to leave their homes, which are in the Gaza City area, right? So yeah. there's, yes. there's something like 1.7 million people in the Gaza Strip and 1.1 million of them are in metropolitan Gaza City. And and they said to those 1.1 million people, you need to move south and get out of the way because we're, we're going to bomb your city back to the Stone Age and you don't, you don't want to be hit by our bombs. Now, if, if you take the majority of the population in, in the whole Gaza Strip and tell it to move down to the southern half uh, of the Gaza Strip where there's no place to house them, it, this was the less, less urban, less developed part of the Gaza Strip that they're all being moved to. It does seem to me one of the purposes of doing that is to create an international humanitarian refugee crisis so that um, they will have to leave. Some of them will have to leave and some other countries will have to take them, right? And 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 so, um, you know, because no other countries are stepping up to take them. But I think the more, the more intolerable the situation becomes, the more untenable the situation becomes, you know, squeezing 1.7 million people into a part of the desert where there's no housing for most of them, uh, while while the city is is bombed back to the Stone Age, um, I, I think that is going to kind of force um, certainly the the international um, refugee agencies and organizations, the UN, you know, to kind of come in there and and get a corridor to get them out of there, and then put pressure, you know, on other Arab countries, maybe European countries, maybe the U.S. You know, to to take some of them, and I think that that's extremely intentional on Israel's part. I think they want that population um, reduced. They don't. I don't think they don't really want to just you know start killing people in very large numbers, but I think they want to make it um, so they really you know that the international community starts seeing that that, that they're going to have to step up and take some of them. So that would be kind of my my take on that. I don't. I don't. I think Egypt, you know, does not want Gaza back at all. And in fact, one that's been a long story. One, one yeah. part of the story and they don't want Palestinians told, to come over. Right. I mean, one part of the story that you told in the in the in the fifties, but I want to give a little more detail on it because I think it's instructive here. Um, is that in the in the original um, uh, UN mandate in forty seven, um, the the UN did not very consciously did not define what the exact borders of Israel would be. But it, but it said more g- generically that um, it would recognize the state of Israel and that the state of Israel would be created primarily out of uh, British Palestine, the former British Palestine. Now, the, the British Palestine map um, included the Gaza Strip. So the Gaza Strip had been in British Palestine and you know presumptively could have been um, in the state of Israel, although um, it was a densely populated Arab area that bordered Egypt and very few Jews lived there. And uh, um, and and so you know when when the war, when the 1948 war happened just as soon as Israel was recognized and Egypt uh, took that strip which you talked about um, Egypt didn't keep it very long no. so Egypt Egypt had the Gaza Strip and long before the other wars that you talked about um, you know because the next the next significant war was in 67 but long before that. Um, Egypt got sick of having the Gaza Strip, and it set up kind of a, a puppet republic that it administered in partnership with um, Syria and Lebanon. And so there was a little um, independent country in Gaza, but that that actually happened because Egypt didn't want to keep it after they got it. And then uh, and then when Israel took it back in the '67 war, and military occupied it for a decade. 
Um, the Gaza Strip was the smaller piece of Egyptian territory that Israel took. And Israel also took the whole rest of the Sinai Peninsula, which was much larger. And then when they had the Camp David Accords in the 70s, and Israel and Egypt um, negotiated a peace treaty and with mutually recognized borders, um, Israel basically wanted to give back all the Egyptian territory. And uh, Egypt didn't want the didn't want Gaza back. They wanted the, the rest of the Sinai back. And so um, and so I think their their experience with it um, did not make them think that it was a, an asset that they really wanted. And and they they do have a border with Gaza now. So there's uh, Gaza is basically fenced in. It really is a yeah. prison. But there's but there's two ways in from Israel and there's one way in from Egypt. And um, Egypt seals that that border more more than Israel does since, um, since twenty thirteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've all and they've all had them seized. Um, uh, they've all had it sealed now. And and so you know Egypt could be letting people out right now, um, but, but they aren't. Not. And yeah, they yeah. aren't right. So it's a uh, yeah. I mean, I I do think that um, any kind of uh, humanitarian solution that could actually work, I think, is going to have to involve people leaving Gaza. But but, you know, what it's going to take to get the world to accept them, um, you know, I, I, you know, we'll have to see what unfolds this week. And, th- and I think this is one that can be a little bit difficult. I mean, there are again, there is undoubtedly individuals who don't want to leave uh, the Gaza Strip. But putting that aside, there are also clearly, I mean, as I was talking about earlier, we already have a huge number of individuals who have lived in effectively refugee status, you know, for decades now, decades. Uh, uh, who would, it seems likely, when you take a look at the data and take a look at even like qualitative studies, people talking with them, uh, that they would want to exit. But there, you know, there has only been teeny tiny, you know, a few thousand people kind of exit options. Why do you think it's so, it has, it is the case that other Arab countries don't want to take in the Palestinians who want to, to exit? Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Yeah, I mean, that's been a, a tricky issue. I, I think there's different levels of, of different kinds of reasons. One, I, I think um, a lot of it was originally rooted in hostility towards Israel because the the Palestinian um, uh, situation um, uh, kind of um, it, it's it's a provocation in the whole Arab world that um, keeps people kind of um, people in that part of the world anti-Zionist, anti-Israel. Right. And so if there was a kind of satisfactory resolution of the Palestinian problem where, um, you know, Palestinians found someplace else and moved there and were happy to have moved there, um, you know, then, you know, the, 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 the pressure um, uh, against Israel um, might, might dissipate. And I, so I think some of it came from that, that, that um, certain Arab governments, you know, their primary objective was to um, maintain an anti-Israel stance. And so they they saw the plight of the Palestinians as um, something they wanted to perpetuate rather than resolve, um, because resolving it would diminish that that sentiment. And then I think the the other kind of problem is that um, in in uh, different Arab countries, you know, they all to varying extents um, uh, are trying to not have um, they, they 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 all have problems with with terrorism and with uh, domestic strife. 
right? So they 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 all don't want to have um, terrorist organizations using their country as a base uh, to the extent that they can put, stop that. Unless unless it's government sponsored terrorism, and then some of them do like that. But the, of course, that's a, different, the, that's a whole different yeah, category. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole yeah, different yeah. category, right? But I think generally, unless it's government sponsored terrorism, they they don't they don't want freelance terrorists operating out of their countries. And I think like the more the more things evolved. You know, Egypt had its own problems with organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood, and uh, um, and I, I think they just didn't want Hamas. You know, so that as as Hamas became kind of the face of the people of Gaza, and 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 I think you know, although you know, Hamas doesn't allow uh, elections, and and I'm sure there's people, many people in Gaza who who don't support these terrorist acts. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, a, a whole a whole lot of people. Um, in Gaza were involved in all these terrorist acts, and a whole lot of people in Gaza do support Hamas. And if you're if 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 a if a government is going to kind of take take these um, Palestinians in, I think they're going to have to expect that some of those people are going to be in the mix. Yeah, and I think it's hard for individuals sometimes. Again, this is not. I want to be clear. This is not in any way. Uh, a uh, a moral justification for what was happening with Hamas. But empirically speaking, it's not probably shock. It's not, not, not probably at all. As I brought up, uh, you know, uh, terrorism and counterterrorism scholars earlier, it's not a shock that we see non-state terrorist organizations in a place like the Gaza Strip because it meets all of what we would think of as being the checkboxes for making that more likely. <clears throat> and as, as we talk about that and that poverty, and I think that can be sometimes hard to separate out. But here's the other piece of this, Ken, and I wanted to kind of bring us around because obviously we're, we're, we're also focused. We're Americans. You know, we're asking what ought to be the policy positions of the United States on things like this. Uh, I, I'll be honest. I, I have had long issues with some of uh, uh, fellow scholars, especially in the decolonizing uh, literature and world. I was really shocked. I kind of at first thought, oh, you know what, we just, you know, you know, there's, uh, kind of this is the you know, right wing guys uh, talking about it. But there was a really, there has been a, a large response in the United States, you know, kind of, I, I don't want to exaggerate, but pro-ish Hamas. <laughs> Uh, and saying, you know, the only way that you're going uh, to have a uh, real peace is you're going to uh, have to have Hamas, you know, fight with weapons and, and come up and attack and, and do things. And and this includes I was looking at carefully because I kept thinking this can't be as big of it as it is, but it is. You know, we're talking about the director of global Middle East studies at UC Irvine. We're talking about Yale's director of religious studies. We're talking about a number of professors of sociology and candidate large institutions. I mean, just to name a few. And again, I, I as I laid that out, it should be apparent that I, I'm familiar with that history and that and that era. But to me, it seems a little weird. It seems like the left in the United States is having a little bit of a crisis on this front. And it's a little shocking to me. And you know, sometimes you ask me, like, what do you think the right's thinking on this? I'm going to ask you on that front. It was hard. There were some things I was reading fr from people on the left, and I just thought, guys, what are you talking about? Like, I, I don't, I can't, I can't, I can't get on board with you at all. Like, this is this is evil. Well, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know exactly what you're reading. I mean, I I would think of uh, President Biden um, as kind of a standard bearer uh, for the mainstream left in America. And well, I, that's I why think, I was specifically yeah, saying yeah. a little bit about kind of our our I would call it the more academic left and the decolonialized yeah. left, right? So I, I want let me make that a, a distinction. I, I was not that was not directed at say your uh, like the Democratic Party. 
Right. Um, yeah, because I think there's a pretty great deal of unity in the in the U.S. Congress right now on these issues and the Biden administration that that everybody is supporting. I mean, really, I would say the American government is supporting the, the, the Israeli response that we're seeing, um, even though I think aspects of the Israeli response are potentially violation of in violation of international humanitarian law and and you might expect the US to possibly say something about that but they but they 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 seem to think that the um the provocations from Hamas that happened last week were so severe that they they seem to um justify um a, such such a forceful response um even you know as i say even in in cases where it may seem that um civilian populations are being targeted or that um certain you know certain kinds of practices like not not allowing water um in which so far they're not allowing and i don't know what'll happen with well, that water the, or power or i mean or power yeah i mean i don't think there's any humanitarian law that says you have to let them have power but i think there is humanitarian law that says you have to let them have water and they they haven't um run out of uh, uh water yet but it, it'll happen in a few days and uh you know, so that's uh, that'll be um, you know we'll see what happens then. But the the you know some some aspects of that um, you know I, I think it is interesting to me more on the in the other direction from what you said that I think the the world at so far and certainly the United States more than most countries has just been squaring up a hundred percent in support of Israel's response and not really asking them to moderate it very much, which, you know, in many past situations, the U.S. has asked um, Israel to moderate some of its responses so as not to um, antagonize the the rest of the Middle Eastern countries. But uh, most of the other Middle Eastern countries seem, seem to be staying relatively quiet about this now, too, because I think they, I think, see this as an attempt by Iran to interfere uh, with uh, peace processes that were proceeding between Saudi Arabia and Israel, and that had already proceeded between um, the the United Arab Emirates and other Gulf states and and Israel and and previously you know Egypt and and Lebanon. So I'm not Lebanon. I'm sorry, Egypt and Jordan. Okay, I, I, um, so, I was about yeah, to say yeah. that. I was like, no, wait no, a not second, Lebanon, not Lebanon. Yeah, no, <laughs> Egypt and Jordan. So I mean, slowly but surely, more more Middle Eastern Arab countries were normalizing relations um, with Israel. And the countries that have done so have not uh, criticized Israel very much right now. Um, and Egypt apparently was even still involved in intelligence sharing with Israel um, about Hamas. Um, and so so I think Israel's getting a pretty free uh, hand. But um, the uh, um, I guess in terms of, you know, the the the, the uh, and again, without knowing exactly what you read, you know, I, I think if if I was going to try to um, you know channel some of my own uh, you know inner leftist thought here, um, uh, I, I think that it is important to realize that um, the people in Gaza really have no hope, right? They really have no hope. You're talking about a country, by the way, not that it's a country, but a a territory where the the median age is 17, right? So half the people in this in Gaza. You know, we're literally born in a prison and have lived their whole lives in a prison and haven't done anything wrong and and can't leave that prison. Um, and I think that 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 kind of um, desperation um, is not sustainable. And so I think I think it is understandable um, that, that, you know, at a certain point, people feel that they 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 any anything is 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 better than the status quo. I mean, I think you could make some small comparisons um, to things like uh, 
you know, when we had the civil rights movement here and, and Congressman John Lewis, you know, walked over the Raymond Pettus Bridge, knowing that the police were going to beat him up. But he thought, you know, getting beat up by the police is better than um, letting letting the the, um, the the situation of of uh, segregation and discrimination, you know, continue without drawing attention to it. You know, I, I think that people do get to a point where um, a, a level of injustice and hopelessness just becomes intolerable. And I and I do think Israel has some complicity for, for allowing that to happen, um, because I think um, if, if Israel would have had better governments, and I would also say if the U.S. would have had better governments in the years since the Oslo Accords, you know, we could be um, much further down a road to a peaceful two-state solution uh, than we are. So I guess that's how I would possibly understand some of um, the, the the sentiments that you're describing. But I, I don't think that any of that translates into um, thinking that um, that the, the the terrorist attacks were justifiable, or the or even that Israel's response to them is not justifiable. Well, this brings us maybe to the last thing we might want to take on this. I mean, and of course, you know, we uh, Hamas currently has hostages, and we know at least some of them are American. And so one of the things I've been ruminating on myself, uh, and it's been a it's been a while. I, I don't you know, I'm not always up in in war and uh, uh, terrorism, uh, although that's one of my areas is, you know, what I can imagine occurring in response to this is we might get some real life bad things happening to those individuals. And I could see that happening on X. I could see that uh, coming out as being both an attempt, as uh, the Atlantic put it earlier uh, today, as kind of trying to pull Israel, you know, further into the trap of over-responding in a way or in a sense. Uh, it could also just be the continuation of the policy that they had from the beginning. But you know, one of the things that for me I think is being overlooked is the fact that you still have individuals who are being theoretically held. This is different as a result yeah. of that from, from previous encounters. This is, this is a first, right? We haven't had this before. And so for me, I can't get away from the fact that that hasn't yet come up, but it surely is or will in a way that's more public. What do you think happens moving forward? Again, my, my expectation is, is that Israel rolls in and Hamas's response is to say, we're going to start live streaming somebody, you know, if you, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah, I mean, the issue of both the hostages, um, uh, the hostages mainly, but also just the fact that nobody from Hamas is talking about surrender. Um, that's why I think Israel's uh, response is fully justified. So e- even though I was... Um, trying to make the argument that the the people of Gaza have uh, extremely legitimate grievances that they've they've been having to live in a situation that nobody should have to live in it's been completely inhumane you know nonetheless um based on what they did including taking the hostages uh the the i think i think until all the hostages are released and until uh Hamas um actually surrenders um i i don't see that Israel has any choice but to keep up this um, really like overwhelming uh, 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 use of force, and 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 so I don't I don't know what's going to happen with the hostages. I you know I, I don't know if they're still going to have enough electricity there to live stream out anything unless they get moving on that pretty fast. I, I think there's already no power coming in from the um, from the Israeli grid or from the Egyptian grid. They don't have their own grid, so every every bit of power that they have has to be because they're generating it from things like um, gas burning or oil burning generators, and you know sooner or later they'll they'll run out of gas and oil as well. So there's I think there are going to be some some um, uh, limits on on how well 
uh, Hamas can communicate um, things like that out to the world. But they, but if they, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that there is absolutely no reason that Israel should slow down the uh, the current assault unless the hostages come out and the Hamas leaders surrender. And uh, you know, if those things would happen. Then I would have a lot more qualms about um, the the level of force that Israel is using, and I would really think they should dial that back. But but not until then. And, and now to kind of answer that question, you were on a roll, and I didn't want to stop you earlier. But that seems to me to be also the reason why you have. I mean, obviously, historically speaking, the United States has been a close ally to the to Israel, right? There's just no question about that. But you're right, and you said this a few minutes ago, our particular moderating um, position has not occurred this go-round, even though we do have a Democratic president, which oftentimes seems to be one of at least the empirical times when that's a little bit more likely. And for me, I, again, I mentioned a second ago in the broader context, but you know, you've lost American citizens, and simultaneously, you have a certain number of them being held hostage. And, I, and that would be, for me, I think the reason why you're not seeing that currently. Yeah, what do you think about that take? Yeah, you know, I'm not even sure with respect to Israel that the partisan uh, split that you posited has been true. Um, I, I think I actually think this is an almost unprecedented situation now where um, Israel is using. Uh, massive asymmetric force against Palestinians, and um, the U.S. is not asking them to dial it back. I, th- I think all Democratic and Republican presidents in the past um, ha- have asked them to dial it back in those kind of situations. And, you know, very famously, there, there's a, you know, there's a big Hollywood movie out right now called Golda about the 1973 war. And it's really the uh, Nixon administration that's putting uh, enormous pressure on Israel um, not to um, attack back into the Arab countries that attacked them, but but rather just to to try to um, repel the, the the Arab armies in, in the seventy three war, and uh, you know the sixty seven war is a bit unique, but it all happened so fast, you know that that Israel actually tripled the size of the country in terms of what it was able to mm-hmm. um, o- occupy in just five or six days, and with not that much loss of life, right? So it was uh, um, so so I think I, I think that. Um, yeah, that the the politics in America uh, have become you know much more um, unified uh, pro-Israel than it used to be, and maybe the the kind of concerns about um, needing to needing to maintain balance in the eyes of the Middle Eastern Arab countries um, has diminished some because some of those Middle Eastern Arab countries are actually not um, um, squawking that much about Israel's response here either. So, um, and, and also Biden, I guess, doesn't get on that well with Saudi Arabia, although um, he was trying to help uh, broker this peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel, but he may be less, um, maybe less, less beholden to them than, than some, some of the Republican presidents might've been. Yeah. Uh, I don't disagree. I mean, I guess this is where we are. So I mean, Ken, we've spent a lot of time now on this issue, which I think it deserved. I, I think it's yeah. something that didn't, hasn't gotten enough time, hasn't gotten enough thought uh, in these kinds of ways. Anything you'd like to leave us with? You know, I, I think that um, it, it would be a, a really good thing if an independent Palestinian state could be established on the West Bank uh, under, under Fatah. That if the um, if there if there was peace and cooperation between that country and Israel, at least at the level that we have seen between uh, Israel and Jordan or Israel and Egypt, and I don't think it's impossible. Um, I think Israel will need to uh, withdraw the the settlements that are there. 
Um, I think some people from Gaza would be able to go there. And so that would relieve some of the pressure on Gaza, which is small and super densely populated. Um, so I, I think that's probably the best possible solution out. Um, and I do think that the Netanyahu government will fall over this and that we may get a more moderate government in Israel that makes that a little bit more possible. So that's my optimistic spin. Well, I'll give us one last little thing as well. As we were talking, as a matter of fact, uh, there were some updates coming out, Ken, uh, and the, the uh, Progressive Caucus actually sent a letter to President Biden uh, asking him to kind of take a more vocal response to, to what we were just talking about, and that is moderate the, their response slightly. Uh, so that just <laughs> happened as we were talking about it. Uh, and that letter just got shared more broadly. Um, so, you know, we, we were talking about that and, and there you go. Um, but so, you know, I think we, you know, we, we've spent the majority of the show now on that. And I'm absolutely fine with yeah. that. But I do want to spend at least a few minutes. I know that'll make us going to be a little bit long yeah. uh, on the U.S. House speaker update. Just talk about that a little bit. <clears throat> Obviously, we had two front runners this week. We had Steve Scalise and we had Jim Jordan. Uh, but what ended up happening is Jordan ends up putting his weight behind Scalise uh, earlier in the week, but then Scalise just couldn't get the votes. Uh, by Wednesday, as a matter of fact, when they were supposed to have a, a new vote uh, in the Republican caucus, uh, they couldn't actually get to that. Depending on who you were talking to, there were somewhere between 12 and 20 holdouts. Um, from Scalise, far more, obviously, than he can afford to lose to win. And that a number only increased as of uh, on Thursday. It got up to about 24, 25, according to a couple of uh, individuals that I know in D.C. And so the hope had been clearly that after becoming the speaker designate, it's, he was going to be able to move quickly forward. But that simply was not the case. And then as of Friday morning, uh, uh, Scalise has now actually pulled out, and that's not a that's not a a, a shock. Uh, he just clearly didn't have the numbers that were there. But when you take a look at uh, individuals like Representative Walmack of, of uh, Arkansas, who is kind of saying, "Look, we keep getting all these numbers everywhere. People can say one thing, tweet something else, and so we really need to. Get, we're all of the map on this thing." In quote, uh, you know, until there's some votes, it's really hard to see what's going to happen or move forward. Um, you know, Trump never really took a firm position. He supported Jordan uh, uh, early on, uh, but he argued uh, just uh, on Thursday on Fox News Radio that he, quote, liked them very much both. Uh, he also kind of took a moderating shot at Scalise saying, look, that his health is, quote, a serious problem. Uh, for those who don't know Scalise, uh, it was diagnosed with multiple myeloma uh, and is in the midst of a, a chemotherapy journey as we speak. And so, you know, he, he pulled out again on Thursday. And as a result of that uh, uh, pulling out, there's a couple of individuals who seem to be attempting uh, uh, to replace that, that spot, although it's not entirely sure who it's going to end up being right now. Uh, Ken, what do you think? I mean, again, I think that it was... I think it was a little bit shock. I didn't think, you know, I'm surprised that Scalise was so confident, to be honest, to start with. But from my point of view, it doesn't appear to me that there's any Republican who's going to come forward that can get the votes needed uh, to become speaker. And and if that was Gatz's goal, I guess, congratulations. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I, what do you think? Am I wrong? No, I mean, it's this. It's this cancer 
that, that Trump injected into the Republicans of not um, accepting the results of elections, right? I mean, that, that's that's the whole that is Trumpism, right? It's, and now it's just eating the Republicans up themselves, right? Because they had an election. You know, Scalise won the election against Jordan in the caucus, and like the the sort of the the definition of being a caucus is that you you know collectively decide on a decision amongst yourselves. And then you all accept the outcome of the election and support it, right? That's the way it's always been done by Democrats and Republicans in every single prior House Speaker election, right? They and not they this have one. Within, <laughs> yeah, yeah, within their caucuses, they have an election, and then whoever wins the election within their caucus, they all acquiesce and they they say, okay, we'll vote for the winner because he won. But now, like this idea, well, just because someone wins an election doesn't mean they win an election. You know, it, it's just that's that's Republican theology now, and I, I think if that's the way they want to think about it, then they can't uh, get they can't get there because you're never going to have any candidate. That's going to get, um, you know, what do they need? All but five votes, you know, unless four, unless four. Well, all but four votes. Um, and if Santos gets kicked out, maybe all but three. Yeah. And so and so, you know, you, you're never going to get there unless people are willing to play by the rule that every prior House of Representatives has played by, which is that once they vote amongst themselves, the people who come out on the short end um, change their vote, you know, but if, if they won't do it, they, they can't get there. And uh, and I think that is just a it's just a manifestation of this 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 um, this this impulse against accepting the legitimacy of elections, um, which I would associate with Trumpism. But I, I did read in The Washington Post today that uh, there's maybe um, a, a handful of Republicans um, from that problem solvers caucus who have started reaching out to Democrats. And uh, some of them are saying that they want the Democrats to make them an offer, um, but that they would consider um, Democratic offers, like that if, if the Democrats would put their votes behind a Republican, and then that, that Republican would then only need about a half a dozen Republican votes to become speaker. So I, I think that might be the path that can break this quagmire, because I think there's factions of Republicans large enough um, that that they that they won't unify amongst themselves, and I think that's what you thought too. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that Republicans can unify among themselves. Uh, I'm not as I, I have seen that floated as well. I don't think that's likely, in large part because you know while if you're listening to the show, you know, it, it, you know myself and you can you know we follow these kinds of things. The average voter though is not going to understand. I think why you know you had Republicans. Uh, acquiescing to Democrats in order to get their own speaker, right? I mean, again, it might make, it does in fact make institutional sense in this particular uh, uh, makedown. That is a really hard case to make. Uh, and so while I, I'm sure that there are some you know, Republicans making those kinds of things in good faith, I think that that is also not an obvious move forward because I don't think that's an electorally uh, uh, viable solution because, again, I don't think that's something that you can put on a bumper sticker. I don't think that's something you can put in an ad, and that's what they need to win. So I'll agree with your prediction that it's not that likely to happen, but I don't actually agree with your diagnosis that it's not electorally viable because, remember, you only need five, six Republicans to do that. Now, there's 18 Republicans who are representing districts that Joe Biden won. You know, so so it's only in that group that you have to ask, you know, how much is it going to harm a Republican who's representing a district that Joe Biden won, um, that, that that Republican works with Democrats to elect a Republican um, as speaker? Right, perhaps even for one of them to elect themselves um, as speaker, a, as a Republican. I, I don't see that that's electoral poison in the districts 
um, you know, in those 18 districts. Maybe. I mean, I hear what you're saying in that, and I don't disagree with your empirical analysis of those particular individuals. But I can imagine that if you are Republican in one of the districts from which Biden has won, while I, I understand that analysis, the other way of slicing that is to say, my, uh, my, I have to be that much more cognizant that I don't peel off Republican voters and therefore lose in an upcoming election. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you could be right. I'm looking at the Washington Post today is naming some names. So they're saying uh, House Armed Services Committee Chairman Mike Rogers. Uh, Representative Elvira Salazar from Florida, Representative Don Bacon from Nebraska. These are all Republican members of the House who have been saying that they would like um, to hear an offer from the Democrats about a, a power sharing agreement. So that's three names right there. And and it would only, you know, it, as we just counted, it would only really require about five or six. So we'll see. But I don't I mean, otherwise, if that's not the end game, what's the end game? I mean, how, how do we never have a, a House of Representatives again until the 24 election? No, I mean, in, in all honesty, I, that's a great question. I wish I had a great answer for that, Ken. Um, but I, I have, in the same way that I eventually had to decide that I wasn't always quite understanding, it took me time to understand, uh, you know, what the Trump, the Trump logic is put that way. I'm trying to like crawl into Matt Gatt's brain and figure that out. And I don't have the answer for you <laughs> Yeah, but that's what, a difficult what he thinks is happen. Yeah, I mean, and, I think, and I, th I think, I think you he... have to understand him and a few others to really understand it. I mean, I don't, I, I, I hesitate to even float something because I'm just not confident that I, that I understand even what his purported internal goal would be. I'm not sure yet. I'm going to be honest. I mean, I think Gates um, had his, it changed, I think. But I think when he did the motion against McCarthy, I actually think he's like the dog who caught the car. I, I think he thought he really thought that some Democrats would bail out McCarthy and that McCarthy would hang on and then Gates would just get to tar him even more as being like the tool of the Democrats. You know, I think he thought that's what would happen. Um, but when that didn't happen, um, I actually think his his new goal is uh, he thinks he can strong arm. Uh, I think he thinks he can strong arm the other Republicans into acquiescing to a far uh, far right uh, speaker if they just if he if the far right just says um we're never going to we're never going to let, let anybody become speaker unless they're far unless they're from the far right but then of course I, mean, I, I, that, I like that explanation so don't get me wrong I, mean, I i hear that and i see that but i i feel like if i was in his shoes You'd then be smart by this point, it won't work. Yeah. Well, even if it yeah. wasn't, I would be I would be putting out the person I'd want, right? Like, isn't yeah, this yeah. the time? This would be the time to start saying. And by the way, my demand is, you know, person X, right? Well, I think he but, thought but, Jordan would fit that bill. I mean, I think he was okay with Jordan, wasn't he? Ah, if he was, he certainly wasn't shouting it too loudly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and at this juncture, if it was, and obviously Jordan had some support, then it seems like he'd be in a, a, a more obvious, easy answer to put in. But instead, you got individuals like Austin Scott coming back into it. And so, so I mean, again, I don't disagree with you. I, I, in other words, I can't offer a very compelling uh, uh, narrative against it, except for to say, if I was doing it, the thing I would be anticipating, that is, you know, and my suggestion is blank, still isn't forthcoming at the moment that I think it would be forthcoming. But I mean, it could just be also, as you note, if you really have, you know, if you really did catch the car, 
you, you might yeah. not know what, you know, oh, I, uh, is it time? I don't know, right? Like, uh, who do I support? Who's, who is the, yeah, it can be yeah. one of those things as well. That's true. Yeah, because I think at that time he just thought like his whole thing is like, I'm going to run against like the uniparty, the deep state, the the combined Democratic Republican establishment that that runs Washington. I'm going to run against all that. And so if McCarthy had to hang on with some Democratic votes, that would have just played into that narrative that that's who that's who Gates is against that. See, McCarthy really is part of this. You know, the, he'll he'll rely on Democrats because it's the it's the Washington establishment against everybody else. And I think he, it didn't really occur to Gates that that would would turn out that way and so and so he um yeah then i think he didn't have a plan right away yeah i mean again i i, I think that's a, that's as fair as assumption as any well ken i'm actually going to cut us off right there because we've already gone long and just say hey that's it for this week's show but i want to have a special shout out right so this is the time of the show when we talk about why it's such a good good idea to become a supporter of the politics guys and as a matter of fact we had somebody become a new supporter of the politics guys warren Thank you. We love that you found something really fun here with myself and with Ken and with Jay and with Mike. And that's just a lot of fun. And so, uh, Warren, thank you so much for becoming a supporter of the politics, guys. I hope you end up using all of your benefits. And uh, if you're there on Discord, make sure to wave and say hi. I know we've been talking about things on there. But true story, I don't always quite know everybody's real name on Discord. Depends on what you're letting us all know. So uh, if you want to be like Warren, and you should want to be like Warren, you want to get all that free, cool, good stuff, like ad-free versions of the show. So, for example, Warren, you know, he didn't have to listen to uh, a mid-break ad for this show. And he's also going to get something really cool. uh, And if he hasn't had it before, he's going to get to go back. Ken and I just finished up. The first seven articles, well, the only seven articles, the Constitution, the original Constitution. We just finished up all of the original Constitution. And so now we delve into something that will will undoubtedly only take a few weeks, he said jokingly. Uh, We're going to take a look at the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. Then we're going to move on from there. We're going to go through the entire Constitution. That is part of our supporters exclusive midweek show. So if, you've, if you haven't been a supporter, you're only getting just a few minutes of that. And then you get cut off, and that sucks. It's kind of like freeware back in the 1990s. You get to like play one episode of Doom, and that was it, you know? And you want to see the rest of it. I don't, I'm dating myself, Ken. Uh, <laughs> but what I will say, though, is, is if you would like to become a supporter of this show, like Warren, it's time to do it. And you can do that by uh, heading to uh, politicsguys.com slash support or by heading to patreon.com slash politicsguys. You can also support the show on Venmo where we're at politicsguys. And that includes things like PayPal. Again, all of those support, uh, all of those links are in the show notes. And again, if you'd like to head to a website, that's politicsguys.com slash support. But we really do, the, the best way to do that is Patreon and to head to patreon.com slash politicsguys. So you're going to get things, like I just said, like the midweek show. Ken and I are going to start our first show on the Bill of Rights in just a few moments. We'd love for you to be there for that, to get to listen to all of it. And depending on the level of support you are, you also get cool things like I was mentioning, like the Politics Guys Discord group. There's even Politics Guys gear and all different kinds of benefits at different levels. So again, I'm going to uh, ask you to head to politicsguys.com support or to patreon.com slash politicsguys if you want to do any of that. Now, if you're in a like to get that midweek show, but you're just not in the position financially to support the podcast, we get it. Just email Mike at mikeapoliticsguys.com, and then we're going to get you all set up, and I'll shoot you that out. So whether you're a supporter or not, we really would appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever podcast app you use. That is a really big deal for the show, so please do that. If you've got a question or a comment or anything else you'd like to share with us, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and X. 
and you can find all of those links in the show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode. I hope you'll join us then.